You are listening to Best Life After Cancer, episode number 56. Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Blitzbach. My friends, I am so excited. Today we have a lovely woman on with us. Her name is Pauline. You may notice she has an amazing accent. I always find that fun when I travel around the world hearing other people's accents. So she is from Ireland. She's going to tell us her story and she's also going to share some crazy stuff that is going on in the Irish medical community right now. I really have a lot of sympathy for the medical teams over there because what they're dealing with is really challenging. It sounds like so Pauline, please take a minute, tell us your story. We're so excited to have you. Hi, Deborah. I'm delighted to talk to you too, because I got to know you during my cancer treatment. I was delighted to find your podcast probably early on in the game, but didn't utilize it then until I needed the tools to get through some pretty tough times. So I'm from Ireland. I live in Cork, which is down in the south. I have a nursing background and midwifery background in my day, but I've left the healthcare system now and work in private industry. So in November 2019, after finding a lump at the age of just 52, I was diagnosed with grade three breast cancer and I had a lumpectomy. I had chemotherapy and I had radiotherapy and I am feeling good these days. I'm a year finished treatment since last May. So it's just about a year and two months. So my energy levels are good. Actually, some days they're great. I'm enjoying life and yeah, I'm very happy. That's wonderful. And then how long was it after you were diagnosed that your sister got diagnosed as well? It was exactly a year to the week. So the week that I was saying a year ago today or this week, I was getting my diagnosis. She walked into my kitchen with, uh, we have the Irish Cancer Society here, their guidebooks and patient literature. And she had the exact same diagnosis as me and is currently going through treatment. And following on from that, you know, obviously it raised alarm bells that it was so soon and so coincidental. And even though the medics didn't think that it would be something genetic, they said, no, it'll probably be your age. It's just an unusual set of coincidences. I had blood taken for genetic mutation, which turned out then that I am PAL B2 positive. And so that's something now I'm trying to address and deal with and accept as well. Well, I think I have accepted it now because it's not going to go away. <laughs> um, you know, it apparently was there at the moment of conception. So I had it right. for 52 years before it caused me any trouble. So just something I need to learn to live with, really. You right. Know? Remind me, do you have a lumpectomy? I had a lumpectomy on the left side. I didn't have an auxiliary node clearance. I just had the one sentinel node yeah. removed. Um, because my surgeon at the time very much tied in with the American Cancer Society guidelines and spent quite a lot of time talking to me about the evidence for doing clearance. So I was quite impressed you know, that it was so well evidenced. 
And he had said that, you know, a lot of the times that the lymphedema rates are the only things that increase. That's the only outcome. You know, my arm is quite good. I have full movement. I kayak, you know, I've taken that up recently. So it's, I suppose, if you're going to say there's benefits to having been through cancer, it just makes you really take on life, as we say, by the balls. (laughs) <laughs> and start doing things that you might have put off but and then through lockdown as well like discovering the beautiful country we live in appreciating it and being outdoors you were one of the lucky people who were completely finished when the lockdown started right i was just about to have my final chemotherapy when things were you know around march 2020 i had my last chemo on the 18th so By that time, then partners weren't allowed to come with you and we were going into lockdown. But I suppose once I had received that last chemo, my radiotherapy was done under lockdown. Okay, Um, it actually couldn't have been better. I mean, there was no traffic on the roads. (laughs) I had a reserved parking space outside the unit, you know, straight in. Apart from, you know, the hand hygiene and the mask, it was very easy to isolate and to cocoon. During that, it didn't matter to me because I was going to be cocooning anyway. So I think that it's nice that you got to get your chemo done, at least with part of it with your partner partner being able to be there with you. Yeah, that was nice. It's been so challenging for so many people not be able to have their support network with them. So I'm glad that Mm. you were able to have him there for the bulk of the time. Yeah. So you had surgery, then chemotherapy, then radiation. Then they found the PALB2. Your sister was diagnosed. She's having chemotherapy. And um, is she going to need radiation as well? She's starting her radiation therapy tomorrow for three weeks. She's commencing tomorrow. So yeah, it's almost like reliving it. But it has been a bit strange because obviously everybody's journey is different. Uh, Everybody deals with things in a much, much different way. I want to know everything there was to know about it. I wanted information. I wanted to hear anecdotal. I wanted to see evidence. I wanted to read. And then other people are, they just want to go with the flow. They just want to just hand it over to the professionals and kind of go, here you go. I'm here. Treat me. Just we're different. So that is funny that the two of you are that different. I think it's so interesting in families, how different siblings can be. I think, you know, we have four kids and my middle two are twins. They're fraternal and they are the most different of the four kids. So they are the bookends. You know, when you're, even when you're talking about doing genetic testing and obviously you're only testing for mutations, but it just goes to show how, how transferable or inherited different characteristics are. I have three boys as well and they're all entirely different. And I used to have an au pair years ago from Hungary and I remember one day coming home and I was a little bit nervous because I knew they had been particularly probably wicked and coming in from work and I was like how was it she just went <sighs> and I said oh no and she said they're all so different and I said thank god because the way she looked at it was that if we were all the same it would be a really boring world and it's the variety in people and and in our kids But I suppose going back to the genetic inherited thing is that there's obviously character traits that are coming through from, who knows, hundreds of years ago in families that we know nothing about. I always find it amazing that you can have the same two parents and the same upbringing and have such radically different children come out of that. I mean, it's the same genetics, it's the same nurturing, but yet you get such different outcomes. It's so interesting. And wait until they're adults or even young adults. (laughs) It's even more interesting. (laughs) 
I think so many people are interested in the U.S. of the differences in medical systems. So here we have very much a private insurance-based country with very little government insurance. It's only for the people over 65. So tell us a little bit what part of the system you were in and what your thoughts are on socialized medicine. Okay. So when I found my lump, I was at my GP or my general practitioner the following morning. I rang for an appointment and they offered me 4 p.m. that day. And I said, oh, no, I think I need to be seen sooner than that. You know, and I whispered into the phone, I found a lump. And she said, "Okay, I can give you 9.15. So because I knew I would need to be referred for specialists. So I needed that referral to go ASAP. So I was seen at 9.15 and I knew my GP's behavior and her serious demeanor that we were going to go further with this. And I got my referral through. And then the system here, I tell you, it's like people say, if you're going to get cancer, breast cancer is the best one to get because it's so well resourced. It's so well researched, finance, and people are always fundraising for breast cancer research and for treatment. So I knew I would not be waiting more than two weeks for my appointment. Mm -hmm. So that's the cutoff with the public system. And I'm lucky that I live in Cork and there's a major teaching university center there as well. So the best of the best. But the only thing is like for the two weeks I was going a little bit crazy because, you know, the mind is the worst part in all of this. So all those thoughts rushing on my head. So those two weeks were interminable I just never ceased to end I got seen I think it was about nine days later Mm -hmm. so I was in and I had triple assessment and the center there is very modern lovely laid out plenty of staff I had my own breast care nurse so of course when they when they met me originally it's like everything's going to be fine don't worry so I had my mammogram I had my ultrasound and when the consultant was doing my ultrasound. Again, because I've worked in hospitals and medicine, you learn to read the signs. So he wasn't saying anything. And I said, look, I just really prefer if you spoke to me straight. I said, because I've already copped that something is not right here. And also my partner is outside the door. So I want him to be here if there's some news. And he said, well, he said, yes, there is. There is there's something going on here. And the imaging, I have very dense breast tissue. Mm-hmm. The mammogram obviously was going to be very limited. And what was more concerning is that I had a, a very high grade of calcification in both breasts. So he identified the lump and he showed it to me and he measured it. So he said, I might be looking at a bilateral mastectomy because he was really concerned with the calcifications. Mm. So then I went down the hall again and met with the surgeon and they said, no, hold your horses. We haven't done any definitive diagnosis. Let's just do it one thing at a time here. So I left that day and then came back in the following morning. Like they really did move mountains because they wanted me to have a contrast dye mammogram. So I had the contrast dye um, mammogram the following morning. I was in the, in the machine and they did a lot of core biopsies in the machine. So while I was in my boob in the machine, this okay. sewing machine job was <laughs> going over and back. And they were like, do you want to stop? And I was like, no, keep going. Because once you get me out of this, you're never getting me back into it again. That's the one thing I would say is that biopsy really, 
you, we should have Xanax on board or some sort of, that is just horrific. Yeah. That the pain of that, you know, so they did 13 of those punch biopsies. Yes. On both sides. And thankfully the other side was fine and the calcifications were benign. So I had my diagnosis. The thing about it here, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but the information is sort of slowly drip fed. I guess that's so that you're not overwhelmed with everything all at once, probably. But again, the mind jumps in and it's like, what about treatment? When am I starting? And what about this? And what about that? And oh, what? And they were like, hold your horses, you know, slow down here one thing at a time, which maybe I found that a bit frustrating, but it's probably a very good idea. So that was on the 5th of December. I had my lumpectomy, found a lump on the 3rd of November, got a diagnosis on the 12th of November, planned lumpectomy on the 5th of December into the day surgery unit, the day suite, they call it. And back out home that evening, which was great. And just had like honeycomb dressings and my painkillers and recovered and took it easy at home. And then met my oncologist after my oncotype came back. And that was 35. So everything was very well explained. Yeah. Um, and then I would have started my chemotherapy on the... 13th of January which is the exact same day that my sister started hers a year later that's crazy it's crazy it's too crazy she didn't want to know about it I did four rounds of TC cyclophosphamide, mm-hmm. and I think at the time as I said afterwards if I knew it was going to be as doable as it was I wouldn't have freaked out so much at the thought of it you know when you get through something Everyone's get, different though. I mean, it, you never know yeah. what you're going to get. You know, some people get yeah. through chemotherapy really well and some people really struggle. I had horrendous mouth ulcers and they hit on the same day of every period of treatment. They showed up without fail. And I just had to adapt my diet and nutrition and everything around that period of time for them to heal up. But they're gone now. And I got through it, you know, and the radiation therapy started the 18th of March. So I was public for my surgery, public for my diagnosis, as is everybody in the country who presents with, um, you know, some findings. The rule of thumb is that you don't wait any longer than two weeks. What I changed to the private system for my chemotherapy, because I had the health insurance and my feeling was that if I wasn't sitting on a public chair, somebody who didn't have health insurance could take that chair and have their chemo a little bit sooner. And the consultant that I was attending had just moved into private care from the public system. And we just, we kind of gelled, we hit it off. And I wanted to be able to try scalp cooling cap, which wasn't going to be an option in the public system because they don't have the resources and the time that that takes yeah. to, to turn that around. I don't think they can do it actually at the moment since, since the pandemic because of infection control. So I got to see both sides because I, you know, I was public for my surgery, but I want to have my chemotherapy where I can try and hold on to my hair. (laughs) Did that work? How did that work for you? That's not really that common in the U.S. It helped or just increased time in the chair, really, because, you know, you have to be in and prepped and put on the, the cap. I tolerated it very well. I didn't lose all of my hair at all. I just got really thin on top. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of like the man who was starting to recede. It got really light and thin. 
now there is no issue it's all back but no I think it was worth and what I felt about it is that in the public system I wouldn't have had any choice it wasn't available flat Mm -hmm. and I said I asked the question why and she said oh you know the treatment unit the day unit wouldn't have the staffing or infrastructure to support that so I have no choice and I said in the 21st century that to me is not good enough. You know, if we have a first world healthcare system, I want to be able to choose. So I went to the private route for the chemotherapy and uh, met my lovely oncologist. And she was fantastic and fabulous and so reassuring. And I think those relationships are very important as well. You know, that she was a key person in my life at that time. And we needed to get along. I needed to feel like I did feel compassion and understanding from her, you know, so that was very, very important at the point in my life where I found myself, you know, at 52. But the system here is pretty good. And you're asking the question about socialization of healthcare. Look, it costs our country an absolute fortune, billions, especially now on the back of a pandemic and vaccination. So even though it's a public system here with breast care and chemotherapy, there isn't a waiting list. They have timelines of, you know, two weeks for diagnosis and roughly about, you know, three weeks after surgery for chemotherapy. But unfortunately, if you were looking or waiting to get a stent or a replacement hip and you were on the public list, you could be waiting for two years. Yeah. You know, so it's not the same across the board. Right. I think that's what's so interesting is, you know, there are some things that the socialized medicine does an amazing job with. I mean, really the cancer care is, I think, equivalent, if not maybe slightly better because everybody has access. Yes. But yeah. Talking about a hip replacement, you know, here mm. in the U S like four weeks, you know, your surgeon says, yeah. yeah, you're a candidate. You're on the OR schedule within weeks. Where it is particularly sad here is in the children's hospital. There is huge delays in the children with spinal deformities, with scoliosis and lordosis. And, you know, obviously there is an appropriate timeline and age to have those surgeries done. And they're all, a lot of them, nearly all of them are on waiting lists and they're not making the timeline. So, you know, they'll have missed the timeline to have the successful surgery. So there's a lot of pressure on government and there's a lot of lobbying um, yeah. to rectify this and to make make the beds available, to allocate resources to that particular area, you know. You know, I don't think there's any place in the world where medicine is perfect. I suppose there's good, good parts, but... Every country um, has their good parts, or at least yeah. every country sort of that has first world medicine has their good parts mm. and every country mm-hmm. has their their challenges. We were talking before the podcast, you were telling me about what's going on in your healthcare system following the pandemic. So obviously every country in the world has had huge challenges to their medical systems with the pandemic and the stress on their frontline workers. And coming out of that, tell me what happened in Ireland Mm. recently. So about Three and a half weeks ago, Ireland's uh, healthcare system in the public domain was hit by a cyber attack. And it's no secret that it came from the east. One of the major gas lines in in the US was hit as well and he paid the ransom. So it brought the medical system to its knees. No files available, no records available, no storage of imaging, 
no x-rays, no blood tests. For example, I have been due to attend my general practitioner to have a hormone assay done to establish if I'm properly in menopause. So I can't have that blood test done because the laboratories, they have recovered some amount of information. But obviously, you know, when they put my medical number on the blood bottle and it goes to the blood bank, that system isn't yet up and running. They've had no emails. So everything is back to the 1980s at the moment. Yeah, paper <laughs> records, printing films, you know, registering the baby births, everything is on paper. So very challenging, no blood tests, no appointments. I met somebody lately who was, he was telling me that, yes, you could have an x-ray. But I said, How, you know, maybe if I had an MRI, couldn't they give me the CD? They don't want to do that. So they can't upload the images because they will be deleted. The storage facility is not there. The images will be deleted off of the MRI machine or the X-ray machine. So it's it's crazy. You know, he just said, like, you know, at the time there was some trauma patients. You know, their care has been compromised. You know, yeah. I can't even imagine all of a sudden all of your records for every patient gone. How do you, I mean, and then you're depending on the patients to tell you what they remember of their cases, because as physicians, we can't remember all the details of of every patient. And so then you're talking about, you know, you and I are both, both have a medical background. You have some understanding of where, what your diagnosis was, what your staging was, all of that. Mm -hmm. There's so many people who have no real understanding. They might not have known what cycle of chemo they were on. They might not have known if they had dose reductions, things like that. This is insane. Insane. So it's even more stress on top of stress. Yeah. Poor, poor workers. I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, and like, it's very hard. I, I can empathize even with the consultants, you know, that trying to deal with the public, you know, you're trying to provide the care that they're trained to provide, but they can't, they can't give that care, you know? Right. It's like, like trying said, to juggle with one hand tied behind your back. Or, or a blindfold. Yeah. A blindfold. That's um, probably a better analogy. Yes. It's juggling with a blindfold yeah, on. With a blindfold. But it just means if you're not, I don't want to say pushy, but if you're, you have to put your own situation front and foremost to chase things. And I suppose it's just that proactiveness really needs to be there now because you cannot rely on the system. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know when, when we will be back to a hundred percent. Like we were already in trouble because of the pandemic. You know, there is going to be a huge increase in missed cancer diagnosis because the cervical screening had halted the breast check, which is our national screening program that had halted. So people weren't getting their typical, you know, age 50 screening or regular, you know, pap smears. So they're preparing for an avalanche of diagnosis. And then you get this on top of it, no records, right? No numbers. The unfortunate thing of that is when you delay for many people, it's not going to make a big difference, you know, three months, six Mm. months, but for some people like, you know, the triple negative breast cancer people, Mm. six months can make a huge difference in terms of whether your tumor is, you know, small and confined and doesn't need chemo or spread to the nose and, Mm. you know, requires chemotherapy and radiation. Yeah. Yeah. 
So oh, well, I'm so sorry for all of you in Ireland. But I suppose you just work with what you have, really, and try and help out by feeding back the information. I think this really is a learning experience for all cancer patients that it really is in your best interests to keep copies of your records yes, and to understand what your diagnosis is, what your stage is, and keep records of what you've had done so that if True. this happens anywhere in the world, you at least can rebuild this for your physicians. You know? yes. I think that yes. if this happened in Ireland... It's only time before it happens in other places. Um, I suppose it just goes to show no system is infallible. You know, yeah. no system. We take a lot for granted that, you know, everything is so secure and that we're, you know, working away. And so, you know, it's one thing I did do dur during my treatment is I bought myself a journal. And I did write down, you know, in order to come to terms with what I was dealing with, you know, even down to my, my pre-meds before the chemo, you know, what I was taking, I recorded that in my journal I, and I recorded like, just, I didn't write books or anything. I just said, you know, how, how, how I slept, mm -hmm. how I felt. And that could just be one word good, or might be bad or tired or fed up blue and those dates as well. And, you know, like I said, your podcast at the time, which I found, I don't know how I found it on Facebook, but I did, uh, was inspirational and just so, so, so helpful. I have said it to a few people and I've shared it on kind of groups that I am in Ireland just to, because it just helped me so much mentally, physically, I could deal with it. You know, I could deal with the symptoms, obviously, and stuff like that. But it was the mental challenge after treatment which as we all know is huge but it just was your stuff was amazing well thank you so much for that <laughs> you know it's one of those things that when I went through life coaching it just opened my eyes I was like mm. oh this is what all of my patients have been waiting for this is yes. what every cancer patient yes. should be getting I really believe that Yes. Every person should be dealing with some cancer specific life coach to help them mm -hmm. get through this afterwards, you know? Yes. Like I agree. A fire for me. You know, I, I think about uh, in my decision-making these days about different things and, and my reflection on different situations that previously could have been a problem because I had breast cancer and I felt I think you get it for a reason. I mean, you don't let that just fly by you as in, okay, I had breast cancer. Forget about it now. It's all over and done. We won't talk about it anymore. Like it taught me so much about people. It taught me so much about myself and, and who I am and how I respond to different things. So I think it's really important to, to process what, what, I, what we would have gone through and deal with it, you know, and, and see what we got from it. Because yeah. I got from it, like, people are so important. Like, you were important in my life, whether you didn't even know you were a part of it, but you were. And my friends were, I was just humbled by the beautiful women that live around me. They all just rocked up and just did so much for both of us. And I found that quite humbling, that the nature of people to care for each other in tough times it, it's still there, you know, yeah. it's still there. Yeah. I learned. And, and then 
that is such the silver lining of breast cancer mm. is it puts things into perspective of the things mm. that in the past you would have been like making a big deal out of. And, you know, I was telling one of my coaching groups this the other day, like maybe six months ago, I was in the Costco parking lot after work and someone backed into my car. Right. And as I'm standing there looking at it, I'm standing there mm. waving my arms and saying, stop, stop, crunch. stop. And crunch. <laughs> and the guy gets out of his car and he's, he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, Hey, no big deal. Nobody's hurt. I said, do you happen to have insurance? And he's like, I do have insurance. I'm like, awesome. Okay. That's great. <laughs> We're all good. Then this is no big deal. And he goes, wait, you're yeah. not going to yell and be mad and be pissed. I'm like, Nope, nope. this is not a big deal. No. It's Friday yeah. evening. I had a long work week. Yeah. We're all tired. I'm going to snap a picture of your insurance and your driver's license. And we're going to be done yeah. with it. And he's yeah. like, Oh my God, yeah. I want to hug you. You're the sweetest ever. I'm like, no, this is no. not a big deal. It's a little, you're, it's a little dent in the car. You're, de you know? you're dealing with it on the level that it needs to be dealt with. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. And that screaming yeah. would have then gotten him to be upset and angry mm. and screaming mm -hmm. back at me. And instead we both left that the scene of that yeah. with, you know, him being like, wow, what a lovely human being. Yeah, and me being yeah. like, great, he has insurance. Yeah. It'll get fixed. You know, it's, me it's the world would be a much nicer place if we could get that message across as well, because during difficult times, it's all to do with your perspective and how you react right. or respond. You know, right. you know, I just found that that's what it taught me about what is important. It just allows me to see joy in the littlest of things. So I think everyone has found silver linings in the pandemic, as well as, you know, in cancer, yeah. like you found that, yeah. you know, a bit taking a step back and having a bit more quiet of a life was actually lovely that's in its it. way. I think that's what I needed. You know, I was 52, three boys, the youngest 21, um, you know, they were like, he's in college, the other two were working. Um, my life was hectic, you know, doing all the things I liked, but probably too much of stuff, you know, run, run, run. And I must say, you know, it was the silver lining in both situations is that it was nice to be at home. Yeah. You know, take a step back. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you yeah. so much for sharing your story today. You're it was very welcome. so lovely to see you. I will tell everyone you're on holiday right now. And I'm you are Holly. in this lovely little cottage on the Castle, Castle Gregory. Castle Gregory. Is Isn't that a lovely name? That is. And yeah. you, I got a little virtual video tour of where she's staying. <laughs> and it is just the quintessential Irish cottage. And I wish I could have done this interview with you in person and sat mm -hmm. out on the deck. That would have been so much fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And if you're ever coming over, you're more than welcome. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.